At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome on to our bi-weekly look at the Western Conference. And we're going to start at the bottom of the alphabet. Let's see how much we get through because... I am on three hours of sleep right now, so we may have to save some of these teams until tomorrow. But I think at least overall, we're spending more time on each of these teams, so hopefully you don't feel like we're shortchanging you by doing some of these on Mondays. I think we're doing spending more overall time on these uh, than we were, uh, particularly at this early point in the season, when there is so much to discuss with these teams. And one of the teams that has been the talk of the NBA is the Utah Jazz. For sure. And the Jazz are on the season, 10-5, and 5-3 five, five and three since the last 15-60. and 60. They are sixth still in net rating, plus 3.5 per 100 possessions per cleaning the glass, which filters out garbage time. Third in offense, talk about that in a sec. 20th in defense, and a disparity, not a huge surprise considering they are one of the biggest surprises in the league. Raptor projects the Jazz to finish with 47 wins, ELO with 51, and thus Raptor gives them a lower chance of making the playoffs, still 82%. And remember, making the playoffs for this, these are the 538 Raptor and ELO models, it's to make the eight-team Western Conference best of seven. It's not to make the play in. It's to make the playoffs. And ELO, 92%. Where I wanted to start is just kind of a conceptual thing, which is, you know, last week we talked about the great work that Christian Arsu has done in terms of how many games you need to pass the R-squared sample of about Point five, which is basically when half of what eventually the results are can be explained by what has happened so far. And we talked about some of the stats that to that juncture had stabilized, like net rating often is there and opponent three-point attempt rate and assist percentage. And not surprisingly, we've had a number of things over the last week that have that have gotten to kind of reach that R squared of 0.5 threshold. And one of the important ones actually relates to the Utah Jazz, and that is offensive rating. And generally that's around the 13th game of the season. The Jazz have played 50 15 so far. They're now third in offensive rating, but they were second at that point, a full 5.8 per 100 possessions clear of the median in the league. And something you like to look at in these circumstances is, well, are they doing it through anything super duper fluky? And the answer to me is no, they're not an incredible three point shooting team statistically so far. They're not really unsustainable in any of the key offensive areas. Instead, they're nope, they're getting they're getting pretty good shots. They've been dominant on the offensive glass. And that should be considered a really, really positive thing for the viability of the Jazz moving forward. Yeah, they did go through 
two straight losses over the weekend to go from 10 and 3 to 10 and 5, but a very difficult portion of their schedule is now in the rearview mirror. They should be returning after this game to Salt Lake City. Is that right? Are they yes. Road trip over? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the road the road trip is over, and it was kind of two separate road trips. They had a West Coast one and an East Coast one with one game at home in between. That's and that, right. Yeah. The home game was a back to back. Um, and yeah, yeah so, I watched, so there are five and five on the road and five and zero oh at home. Right, and so and, and so you, I watched more of the, which I now regret considering what Joel Embiid did. I watched more of the Saturday game against the Wizards than I did Sunday Sunday's performance against the Sixers. And yes, Utah lost both games, including including the one against the Wizards. But I thought they played reasonably well. Kristaps Porzingis looked great, but this is not a Wizards section. But one thing I looked at from that contest was that the Jazz took, and again, this can be scorekeeping, 17 shots in the restricted area and 28 floaters, and they made 12 of those 28 floaters. That is very high in terms of number, very low in terms of percentage. And you had some guys like Sexton and Clarkson who were, you know, like Sexton was one restricted area shot and six floaters. Clarkson was pretty similar there. But I wanted to look at, well, is that representative of the big picture? Because, you know, they're play- the Wizards are playing Porzingis and Gafford. They have a reliable rim protector when those guys are both available. And the answer is that the Jazz have been per- plenty good getting the ball to the basket overall in the season. So that's not a huge concern. And then they had a back-to-back, took- went up to Philadelphia, and Joel Embiid put one of the biggest individual statistical numbers on them in the history of the modern NBA. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this one was a completely ridiculous and beat him for performance. He scored 26 of the Sixers' 27 fourth quarter points while also blocking five Jazz shots in the quarter. I think they could have gone to the double team, maybe a little more than they did. They only tried it, I think, twice. One time he got off the ball and then got it right back and scored at the elbow before the double team could get there again. But they're on the second night of a back-to-back. That double teaming in the post isn't something that a lot of teams do the way they did years ago. So it was tough to implement on the fly. And certainly they don't have the personnel. They're trying to guard Embiid with Lowry marketing. They tried putting in Vanderbilt guarding Matisse. Thibel. That was the most disappointing part to me for the Jazz defense. And I'm sure we'll lock in on Joel Embiid, who's playing much better now. Next week, he scored 101 points in about 24 hours. <laughs> so pretty good. That was pretty, that was pretty good. Uh, but... The Jazz don't have much size, and they didn't really try Walker Kessler. I'm sure he would have fouled out in about two seconds if they did. And Vanderbilt, you know, maybe they could have gone with the, like, Bam Adebayo front him like crazy, but then you got to have all your rules on the weak side there. So, yes, this is the Jazz defense we thought would be vulnerable. But it would have been nice if they could have had a little bit better understanding with a relatively experienced group of, hey, let's not guard Matisse Thibel and let's not guard P.J. Tucker, and the Sixers are 4 of 22 from 3, so maybe we can make them beat us from the outside instead. But I mean, that is one nice thing about the Jazz defense is they're not allowing that many threes, But and that's kind of a you know, Will Hardy comes from Boston. That's kind of Boston's approach more into Brad Stevens when they're just like, hey, we're going to let guys go one-on-one, but we're not going to give up plays uh, off the help. But And they only put up 103 in the end, or I'm sorry, 105, but there was some bullshit fouling at the end. So you might say, hey, like the defense was good enough to win. The problem was the offense, and I'm sensitive to that. 
But also, like, you gave up 27 in the fourth, and the guy had 26 of the 27. Like, at some point in that fourth quarter, you got to do something different than what they'd been doing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of the greatest quarters I've ever seen. I just happened to turn the game on uh, after I'd been watching a bunch of other stuff earlier, and it was uh, pretty good. But uh, back to the Jazz. Anything else we, we can talk about uh, just with their overall profile here? Yeah, a, c- a couple of different things I wanted to mention briefly. Um, they're playing primarily five out. So the only two players in the jazz rotation that don't really shoot threes are Jared Vanderbilt and Walker Kessler. And so that is opening up a lot in transition. Um, I've started watching, but I've not yet finished the half court hoops video that just came out today talking about the success, the success of the jazz offense. And a big part of it is like they did the last couple of years under Quinn Snyder, Will Hardy's team is r- running in transition for threes and that is working out very well for them. And it's also creating driving lanes. Like that's one of the things that I love about intending to spread the floor is that you kind of discombobulate the defense a little bit and it opens up those possibilities and the jazz as i mentioned before they're not getting unsustainable three-point shooting and also that spreading the floor as we've seen you know the warriors are probably the archetype here that allows you to get better typically easier rim attempts because they're you know the center might be in a different position or something else and so that's something to track and then also utah i mentioned that one of the things that they've done really well is the offensive glass Not only are they fourth in the league in offensive rebound rate, they lost the game, but their offensive rebound rate was 43% in the loss of the Sixers on Sunday. Yeah, Sixers, not a great uh, defensive rebounding team. So that's, again, you don't feel like this is some team that's going to really bludgeon you on the glass. Uh, They don't have really anybody who's an athletic way. I mean, Bando is a a great offensive rebounder, so maybe that's a, a big part of it just on his own. But they also get into mismatches. At time, and guys like Markinen can get on the offensive glass. Anything else that you had, Generally, I have a, a few other small Jazz observations from this game before we um, move on. One other quick thing. Uh, the Jazz have taken the, they've driven the fifth most times per game, about 55 times per contest. They do have a lower field goal percentage and free throw, like field goal percentage, meaning shots, that sh- whether the shots resulting from drives go in or out, and they're not getting to the line as much, but they are getting a higher assist rate than most, which is interesting and kind of makes sense when you think about their personnel. They don't really have that, you know, driving, great, great, great finisher type of player, but it's, you know, being active there, I think that generally leads to good things as as it does for the Thunder, who we will talk about in the future as well. Uh, wherever you want to go, though, is fine. Yeah, it, it makes sense that they don't have great finishers. Colin Sexton has been getting on top of the rim pretty well, but they do spread the floor and they kind of get that churn going, and so they're going to continue to drive and continue to drive until the good shot opens up. Colin Sexton did have some nice blow-bys to get to the basket in the fourth quarter. He was out there at the end, but he did have one Sexton-like play where it was a two-on-one. Sexton was like kind of ahead of Embiid, who had already blocked a bunch of shots in the fourth quarter. Clarkson is running to the right corner. It's about two minutes to go. He's got the tying three wide open in the right corner. Sexton throws it to him. Instead, he goes for the layup and gets pinned from behind by Embiid, which was a... And Colin Sexton still has a way to go as far as improving as a passer. Mike Conley had some uncharacteristic turnovers in the fourth quarter. As I mentioned, it's really, in the end, an offensive loss for the Jazz. And Joel Embiid had a lot to do with that, obviously. And they tried Vanderbilt. He was guarding Vanderbilt for a while. Then they went with Olenek rather than Vanderbilt to try to spread the floor more on Embiid. And Embiid did a nice job 
shutting down Olenek a couple of times uh, on pick and pop threes. Again, it just it can't be overstated what a good game Joel Embiid had in this one. And Mike Conley just got caught in the air on some un- uncharacteristic turnovers that was killing the Jazz also. But I, I expect them to continue to win games, particularly in Salt Lake City. I think they're going to be really difficult to beat. And they're a, a little worn out, I think, uh, at this point in time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's probably, been a lot of games in short succession. So they played Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, with all but one of those games being on the road. So that's that's a big... Ch- I, I, yeah, yeah, so I that's that's five and five games in eight days encompassing both coasts. Yes, I think I think they're they're totally they're totally fine. One other thing I want to because uh, um, so Kevin Pelton had the I uh, was the first person I saw with the stat that so game score it's kind of like you know like a box score thing about how how good how how good a player's game was. It will it, his fifty four point four for MB will be eighth in the in Statheads database, which goes back to seventy seven seventy eight, and. However, this is the part that I think you'll be interested in. I mean, other than all that, it is actually ninth if you include the playoffs. What is the one game playoff game score since 77 that is higher? And if you want a hint, I'll give it to you. Playoff game score that is higher than Joel yes. in this game? All right, let me throw some of these out here. And if you want a hint, I have it for you. Let, let me just try to throw out some of them. Um, LeBron in game one against the Warriors in 2018 be one thought um kevin durant 48 minutes in game five against the bucks i don't think a jordan one is going to be up there because he just missed too many shots for game score i'm trying to think maybe there would be like a shack game in there but i I think there's always like he would miss some free throws or something it never quite got there Uh, okay i'll give you a hint the hint is that this game occurred during the dunked on era it is a game that we discussed on this podcast during the dunked on era don't think it was yeah, I'm trying to think of ones where just like the guy just didn't miss any shots at all and had like you know well had over 40 points um okay I'll give you another hint it didn't end in regulation didn't end regulation well so is it that LeBron 51 no Damian Lillard in that crazy double overtime game against Denver Oh yeah, the fifty-five. Uh, two years ago, that one actually occurred to me, and I didn't. I didn't say it just because I feel like for game score, it's just too hard for a guard. But yeah, he probably had a bunch of assists in that game too. He had what fifty-five. Yeah, he, did. he had fifty-five, and... ten, ten assists, six rebounds. Was seventeen to twenty-four from the field, twelve of seventeen from three, nine to ten from the line. Okay, now that's yeah. really good. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since twenty. 15. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped 
straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep I'm like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that hundred night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas i'm gonna be freezing but the american giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout please remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us let's it, get to it, the spurs let's do it Sorry. the san antonio spurs are now six and seven on the season they are one and five since the last 15 and 60 their net rating negative 5.5 is 26th in the nba that's a mix of offense and defense they're 23rd on offense 28th on defense raptor still more skeptical than elo which makes sense again the perception of them before the season 33 wins on raptor 37 on elo and that has a big shift in their playoff odds 11 percent raptor 31 percent on elo where do you want to go with the spurs i want to talk a little bit about what the spurs offense looks like generally and they are 23rd now on offense let's recall in terms of some of their top line numbers that they've had some games where everyone was injured like that 43 point loss to the raptors they basically just didn't play didn't play kelvin johnson they didn't play devin vassell so the spurs are continuing to play an egalitarian style as they did a year ago remember they ran a lot through Dejounte murray he had a lot of assists but they were second in assists per game to the warriors a year ago and they still are managing to find guys off the pass which is good as I'll get to. But they are third in the league in the percentage of plays is the synergy data off of cuts. So that includes some dump-offs off of drives, but mostly guys just going back door. They don't finish those plays very well. They're 
below average there, but that's it's such a high efficiency play type that you if you can get more of them, it's definitely very useful. They lead the NBA in points scored off of spot ups, thirty four per game off spot ups, and recall that synergy category includes driving off of spot up plays as well. So 34 points a game off of spot-ups, 33 spot-up possessions, and their efficiency on that is mid-pack. But again, that's more efficient than certain play types are. And like, man, like the Spurs, like they really have like great shooting. I mean, all right, they got Doug McDermott. You know, he's he's pretty good. But the crazy thing in terms of their three-point shooting is Keldon Johnson is taking 8.8 three-point attempts per game, and he's making 43%. I mean, that type of volume. And this is a guy who, recall, was just like not considered a shooter at all he's a physical bowling ball driver and the shot was the big question mark it part of why he dropped to number 29 overall and even as recently as last year i recall draymond green in a game against the spurs just kind of doing like the stomp i dare you defense on kelton johnson and kind of getting in his head a little bit but this is maybe a good development story sometimes you give guys too much rope and they're not accountable other times guys are actually really able to explore and get better and to yeah, 43% probably going to come down. I don't think he's going to be, like, the second-best shooter in the NBA, which is what he would be if he makes 43% of 8.8 three-point attempts per game. But just that number of threes is crazy. I mean, well, he's got this high-arcing shot. It's, you don't think he would be that good of a shooter, but the numbers are, are pretty impressive. So I, I did a search on basketball reference in terms of per 36 minutes, so slightly different than what you're doing. Kelton Johnson currently eighth in the NBA in three-point attempt frequency, and it's Curry, Clay Thompson, Heald, Simons, Tim Hardaway Jr., Rozier, and Lillard above him. That's it. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's incredible. Like, I mean, that's, that is, it's a ridiculous group. And you brought up the the percentage. The only player shooting better on threes than Keldon Johnson at anything close to that volume is Stephen Curry. Curry's at 44%. Keldon Johnson's at 43%. Yeah, so we'll have to get into yeah, we'll have to get into his game a lot more in the future, do a film breakdown of it. But 23.6 points per game. 28 usage versus 21 last year, and he was below 20, below average his first two years. So yeah, I mean, he's been, and he's got 60% true shooting. He's been pretty good. And, and now, what happens to his efficiency? He's below 50% on two. What happens if that three-point percentage normalized? But again, like, he's been pretty high percentage recently. It's just this volume is pretty crazy. I mentioned that it's a good thing that the Spurs set each other up as much as they do because when they are forced to score one-on-one or or two-on-two out of the pick and roll, it gets ugly. They are 27th in efficiency out of the pick and roll and some of the other teams that are down there like the Lakers, I mean, they just... They don't have anyone who's good out of pick and roll. It's just what it is. I mean, I guess, you know, Kelton can't really get all the way to the rim. He's not a great passer. Trey Jones is a great pick and roll point guard. Uh, Not really. And Blake Wesley was never going to be efficient, and now he's out. And Josh Primo isn't on the team anymore. And Devin Vassell's been doing a little bit more of that stuff. He's upped his usage as well. But he's still not going to get all the way to the basket. He's not going to set up his teammates for anything too juicy. And so it is... A little disappointing that they are 15th in frequency. You shooting out of pick and roll, given how poor they are from a percentage standpoint. But also, this isn't a great offense. Like, they don't have much choice a lot of the time. I I definitely feel as though they are maxing out everything they could possibly be doing offensively so far. Defense, obviously, is a concern. Jeremy Sohan has pretty positive numbers. They're 6.3 points per 100 better 
on both ends of the floor when he's on there. He's really the only guy who has a positive net rating among their main guys. But Kelton Johnson is even. And again, that's what I wanted to look at closely of among their good players. And I think Devin Vassell is like a negative two uh the guy who have also maybe missed some time, they've actually been respectful when those guys are there. But the Spurs also could, any time that Keldon Johnson or Vassell are going to miss time, like they're going to be in trouble. And Jakob Pearl, interestingly, I'm sure there's some shooting luck involved here or just the fact that he's played some when all the other guys haven't played, that they're well, actually much worse defensively when he's on the floor. I looked it into it a little bit, and Pirtle, um, yes, as we would expect, Spurs opponents are shooting better from three when Pirtle's on the floor than when he's off. You expect that. But concerningly, so the, the Spurs opponents have been terrible shooting at the rim basically every year Pirtle's been in the league. There's only one year where, they, where they've been, you know, they've made a high proportion of shots on him. Spurs opponents at 66.3% so far. That's 37th percentile. So that's actually very bad defensively. Very That's very good offensively. And I want to keep tracking that. Again, small sample size. I expect it to normalize. Pirtle's been a consistently good rim protector over the years. But that is significantly different than we've seen with Pirtle's minutes every other season. Yeah, so Spurs now 1-5, as we mentioned. And after that, nice 5-2 and two start. Part of that's been injury-related. Again, they are probably going to be very cautious, shall we say, with some of these main guys. So, like, Pirtle might get traded still. Well, and, and also note that in the first stretch of the season, before we did the 15-60, the Spurs were outperforming their point differential by the most in the NBA. So it was like, they basically, they, they'd, won, they'd won some close games, and they and like they had that close win. I think Indiana and Chicago were both, like, single possession games late and all that. Um, so that, and they're actually still fourth in outperforming their point differential in the league. Or, sorry, they're fifth. They, they are a little bit behind the Bucks. So... That is something there. Uh, anything else on, on the Spurs, or can we move no, to... No, I mean, I think just when they have all their guys, I expect them to be relatively competitive, particularly yep. at home. And when they don't, I expect them to get killed. Totally fair. Let's move to the 500 Sacramento Kings. The Kings oh, mate. King's have... over, Daddy. Yeah. Uh, the Kings are 5-2. and two. They're 6-6 six and six overall, 5-2 and two since the last 15-60. and 6-2 S- six after an 0-4 start. Yes, 6-2 and two after, after that start. Um, they're 22nd in net rating, negative 1.4 per 100 possessions, 10th in offense, 27th in defense, and the 538 models still skeptical of, of Sacramento. They're not skeptical. They're going to go over 32 and a half, though, baby. Now, uh, 20% chance of making the fi- of making the playoffs per um, Raptor, and about 28% with Elo. And so you wanted to talk about their. Their 500 establishing win over the under 500 Golden State Warriors on Sunday. Yeah, the Warriors have lost their first seven road games. Not good. After that nice win we talked about on Friday, we probably won't spend as much time in Golden State's portion of this game as we will Sacramento. I thought this was the best I've seen DeMontis Savonis look in a Kings uniform. That was number one. They were very aggressive with him, most of the way in pick-and-roll coverage. They did kind of change it up a little bit. They even started double-teaming Steph Curry all the way out by half-court when they are trying to set those screens. Um, Mike Braun, I thought, did a very nice job defensively just finding enough to work for the Kings. You know, Sabonis does have decent mobility on the perimeter sliding compared to most centers. The big problem was with him is, well, 
you have to play that way because he's not a good rim protector. But against Steph Curry, you have to play that way anyway. So he's actually probably better at executing the type of coverage that you need to as a center if you're going to play a conventional pick and roll coverage then maybe someone like a, a Nikola Jokic would be because he has those relatively quick feet for a center and he was able to just completely bludgeon the Warriors on the offensive glass six offensive rebounds he had eight assists as well 22 rebounds overall 26 points uh was making every jump or two he hit a couple of threes and really was just unlocking a lot of the king shooters like kevin herter and keegan murray coming off the screens those guys combined for nine out of 15 from downtown as the kings made their threes and the warriors did not particularly at the end of the game um you know and it really it's very little of the posting up from sabonis and we really other than like quick duck-ins we haven't seen much of him going one-on-one in the post, even against smaller players, even against someone like a Clay Thompson, who was the Warriors were switching two through five when Clay was in the game, and they they weren't just going to the static post up; they still were just trying to find ways, like getting on the offensive glass off those De'Aaron Fox drives as well. Uh, that was the second thing that stuck out to me was that De'Aaron Fox usually doesn't play that well defensively against Golden State I thought he was only okay in this one but had 22 points eight assists and he had a personal 7-0 run that took the Kings from down a couple in the fourth to a lead that they wouldn't relinquish and he, he had probably three plays in the second half some of them after makes even where he just dribbled the entire length of the court pushed it up and, and went right to the rim against the Warriors rim protection that was not very good in this one also sacramento 16 of 37 from three including a five and nine from keegan murray and four of six from kevin herter right and you know that that obviously helps a lot and their starters yeah, murray was really good with 21 points uh eight of 15 you know he, he's had some strong games but like he had one three where he started in the left corner came off of two screens at the top of the key and was like fading to his right squaring up in the air knocked it down like herter has been one of the best he's over 50 percent for the season uh so like those two guys being in the starting lineup uh, hitting shots is uh a big part of why this king's team is as you mentioned 10th in offense and also i wanted to mention the the players that mike brown went to in his rotation so that was you know the starting five now with keegan murray thankfully in it now it's fox and herder keegan murray harrison barnes Sabonis. And then the five players that came off the bench, Davion Mitchell, Malik Monk, Terrence Davis, and then Trey Lyles, who only played briefly, and Shemize Metu. Yeah, so Rashawn Holmes is no longer in the rotation. Kaziak Pollard, remember, had that abortive starting stint. And uh, now nah, it turns out Keegan Murray's a little better than him. And Braun rode his starters pretty hard in this one. The only guy who played more than 18 minutes off the bench was Monk. But uh, Terrence Davis has kind of given them... A little bit of a spark defensively. He actually played 18 minutes. Like he and Davion Mitchell, I thought, helped change the game late in the third quarter with some of their pressure on the perimeter, just preventing the Warriors from getting to spots, preventing them when they do run set plays from like entering the ball where they wanted to, or just like making it a little bit harder to dribble to where they were just making every action three to five percent harder and that can lead to a few more stops than you'd ordinarily get and that level of effort really matters Metsu, i think it is, was pretty good four or four from two he's got more mobility defensively i think that's why he's out there and he also 
spreads the floor as a backup center. Trey Lyles played in the first, was negative nine, missed his only two three-pointers, did not play at all in the second half. Let's see if there's anything else that stuck out to me about this one from the Kings side. Uh, you know, they just didn't screw up defensively. You know, a lot of teams will switch a fair amount, and they'll do that with their guards. But similar to the approach that J.B. Bickerstaff took, Mike Brown is like, hey, you know what? Like, we'll, we'll probably give up some shots. You know, we're going to have to run off screens. We're going to do the best we can, but we're not going to switch on the perimeter and give up, like, slip cuts to the baskets for dunks or anything like that. And that worked well enough uh, that their offense uh, was able to come through and carry the day. Uh, before I forget, can I do the Warrior yeah. stats? I know we're not going to emphasize Well, Let me see if I have anything else in the Sure, games. go ahead. Find the, the notebook here. Yeah, they also forced uh, 18 Warriors turnovers, although 10 of those were dead ball turnovers. So that was part of it. The Kings do not block any shots at all. They only had two blocks in this game. I think they're like 29th in the NBA in blocking shots. Like They're not a great rim-protecting team for sure. Harrison Barnes has like definitely become the fifth option now in the starting lineup, which is interesting because I thought he had the best season of his career a year ago. And he's starting to... like at least do some of those long stride finishes and just gotten to the line in a few games, but really just hasn't been featured much. He's just started the year poorly and he's kind of just been passed. And, you know, Malik Monk coming off the bench, I mean, he's probably really the sixth option or so on this team. And maybe they consider going to him a little bit off the bench with some of these groups to get those a little more punch. Um, yeah, let's get to the Warriors now. Golden State Warriors, after their loss on Sunday, are 5-8. and eight. They are... 20th in net rating zero negative sorry negative 0.7 11th in offense 23rd in defense and the models are still you know as you'd expect they're still they're still pretty positive on the warriors but 73 percent chance of making the playoffs at a 40 at 44 and 38 projected record is not exactly the rosiest in the world and i mean the part that we talked about a little bit during the uh the post Cavs pod that we did but bears a little bit of emphasis here is just how stark their rotation has been where this is another game with no Jermichael Green, no James Wiseman, no Moses Moody. And so that meant Poole, DiVincenzo, Anthony Lamb, and Jonathan Kaminga were the only players to play off the bench. Yeah, and Kaminga played a little bit more in this one. I don't know that he particularly earned it. Honestly, he loves this pump fake, and that can get him to the line. I think he kind of learned that in the G League. But the number one option should just be, like, going up and scoring <laughs> because uh, he's should be able to attack uh, off the drive. And they had one set play to get him going on a fake dribble handoff with Steph uh, and turn the corner. And he's just has the way he's got to play on this team because he doesn't shoot it well enough as a four. His individual defense is pretty good, but he really is much better defending one through three. But then he has to play as a four, and then he can't shoot it well enough to really play the four or really play anything, you know, the one through three. So he has to play the four defensively, but then he doesn't really have any help instincts, doesn't have any kind of a presence, not a good defensive rebounder. And so he makes it just difficult to construct lineups around him. Even if he's playing with Draymond Green, they kind of, you still need some sort of secondary help defense there. Jordan Poole was pretty decent offensively. He's at least found the three ball in the last two games, but continues to turn it over, had two travels in this one, four turnovers, only played 20 minutes. Again, it felt like more the way he was being used in the playoffs. He, he had to match up. The Kings have decent enough guards that there wasn't really a place to hide him, so he had to guard Fox at times. He was 
They weren't going to put him on Herter, who also was abusing Clay Thompson in this one, the second game in a row that Clay has really struggled defensively, and maybe more than that, I just didn't watch those. Uh, and then Mike Braun was really just doubling, double teaming Stephen Curry so much. He was 9-17 from the field, which is a very low number for him, playing 37 minutes. Had four turnovers, only four assists. And the big problem for the Warriors, though, was just they couldn't make an open three. I think they were, they missed their last seven three-pointers, six of which were pretty open. Uh, Darren Poxers had a nice block on uh, Steph three in the corner. Um, they were getting open looks, many of them off of Steph's gravity, and just couldn't knock him down at all. Clay Thompson did hit a few more shots. He was 5 of 13 from three. He's trying to take more shots off the catch rather than off the dribble. He just really cannot seem to get much rise. A lot of his misses are short. I think Steve Kerr was saying that he thinks it's still getting his legs under him. For that, they actually closed the game first with Anthony Lamb, who was fine in this one. It didn't have quite the impact as he did against the Cavs, because this is also just a, an overall quicker team with more spacing. Like, he's going to struggle to stay in front of the likes of, say, Deer and Fox. And they actually closed out with DiVincenzo, who has provided a little bit of a steadying influence. Had a few drives in this game, hit 1-3 on the move in the corner, but it, it's not a big offensive threat. For Golden State, they just felt like they didn't want to go to Looney because Mike Braun was just straight up double teaming Stephen Curry with Looney and Draymond on the floor, and they just couldn't get enough juice attacking the basket out of those plays when because they were usually double teaming Looney would set the screen at half court and then they throw it to Looney. He actually made a few plays in the first half off of that action, but it seemed like Steve Kerr wanted a little bit more offensive juice if they were going to double team stuff, and they just couldn't make shots. The one good thing for the Warriors is Andrew Wiggins continues to look really good. Generally does more damage in the first halves, and I think Golden State should honestly try going to him more than they have. And But he was 26 points, 10 of 18, and it, it's been more aggressive with the three, I would say, this year. But really from two, his cuts, offensive rebounding, and the occasional post-up, like it hasn't been too much of that like mid-range isolation stuff so he's been solid this year you know I, I think you know Draymond looks like he's in shape he's trying he just doesn't quite have that same level of explosion like as particularly I noticed the most on the defensive glass where he's just not even able to get up for like those tip outs that he used to get on the defensive glass anymore he's kind of turning into a pure box out guy and so they, they need to do better on the defensive glass that's never been like Clay's specialty, for example. But, uh, but seven defensive rebounds in this game. since you yeah. mentioned Clay Thompson, I feel like we can make this a very small recurring segment in this. Clay Thompson on the season, 46% true shooting on 26 usage. Yeah, and if Clay Thompson isn't going to play well and Jordan Poole isn't going to play well, we've talked about, okay, you know, they're. Kaminga and, and the bench guys, and they got to play Anthony Land. They're struggling to find that. If Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole would just play better, a lot of these problems go away. And I'm talking about playing better offensively. I, though playing better defensively would help too. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets. From there as well, I felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed 
to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, womenswear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. The backcourt that perhaps, at least in their own minds, has surpassed the Splash Brothers, the top two, not two Memphis Grizzlies backcourt, and the Grizz, sorry for going out of order here, but I also did Portland and Dallas, so I'm going to let Danny talk for a while since he was our point man on the Grizz. Nine and five, they lost uh, I get in Washington where it's absolutely impossible for good Western Conference teams to win, apparently, when the Wizards play without Bradley Beal. <laughs> the, the the Wiz now have three straight wins without Bradley Beal against above 500 Western Conference teams, but nonetheless nine and five, cruising along reasonably well without Jaron Jackson Jr., who is playing five on five, was upgraded to doubtful I think today. So imagine he'll be back in the next week or two at most, and that was in line with the the optimistic projections. Uh, but they're five and three since we last checked in on them. Tenth in net rating at two point eight. Fifth on offense, and they've actually improved now to 17th on defense. I expect that to go up quite a bit once Jaron returns and gets back in the mix as well. They are projecting for third in the conference, or is that third in the league? First in the conference right now, actually. 53 and 29, but yes, third in the league behind the Celtics and Bucks. That's per Raptor, and then Elo likes them at 51 and 31. 97% chance the playoffs per Raptor, 91% ELO. Danny, let's talk about the second member of top two, not two. Yeah, so I, I, you know, during the week I put in notes for potential 15 and 60 topics, and we did Grizzlies Celtics on Monday and got asked a question during the broadcast of kind of talking about Desmond Bain's ascent and what he's done this year and kind of like where he fits in and what what this growth could mean for the Grizzlies. And so I wanted to I thought it was a really interesting question. I wanted to do a little bit more digging. This is not a full Desmond Bain segment. I want to cover some other ground too. But what I wanted to start with was to ca- to kind of adjust to calibrate myself on well what are we really talking about here? I wanted to look at what Desmond Bain has done so far and put it in the context obviously we're dealing with a much smaller sample size of what players did last season. So Desmond Bain, as we're recording this podcast, 62% true shooting on 27.3 usage. And so what I did is I, I went into I went into basketball reference and I lowered those thresholds a little bit because you want to, you know, regression to the mean and everything else. 
I lowered the thresholds to 59% true shooting and 26 or higher usage. And worth noting, Desmond Bain had 59% true shooting last year. So, I mean, he could end up, of course, falling below that. It's what he did last year. So I'm like, okay. And I genuinely didn't put too much thought into, well, what is this group going to be? But I wanted to see, is this stars? Is it like, is it a lot of people? Is it role play? Like, how does it, you're not going to be role players because the usage rate is so high. And the answer was, there are only 13 players who had 59% true shooting or higher and 26 usage. And just about all of them classify as like bona fide stars like it's a group you know the bigs it's like Jokic and Giannis and all that type of stuff but on the guard line Steph Trey Kyrie DeRozan Levine and then the guy who isn't a star is Jordan Poole but Jordan Poole is obviously well yeah. below that I mean, he's, he's an offensive star the, yeah. his defense is the reason that he, yeah. or at least he was last year and, and, and so year. then so I'm like wow that's a really that's rarefied air and that's really impressive. And then I'm like, well, let's lower it. You know, that usage rate is pretty high. You know, Bain it, especially considering some of the absences they've had at 27 usage. Let's lower it to 25 and then to 24 and see who adds in. No guards, just Kevin Love from last year and Bam Adebayo from last year. So it's, I mean, it's not superstar, megastar type of stuff necessarily, especially because we're 12 games into the season. But I gained a greater appreciation for just like, it is extremely rare to be this efficient when you are shouldering that much of the offense, even if you're the, you know, the secondary secondary option next to the incomparable John Morant. Well, I thought it was interesting before we move on, just in a general sense, you, you, had the, you didn't mention it in your research, but you have it in the notes here, that when you lowered it down to 24 usage, that didn't add anyone else in. Right. That kind of says something maybe about the idea that, hey, if you can be that efficient and you're a perimeter player, like you're, if you're a big, you're probably not going to have that high usage. It's hard to increase it. And if you do have that high usage and you're that efficient, then you know, you're going to be a star and they're going to throw it to you more. And same thing if you're on the perimeter like it, this you're if you're going to be that efficient like you're either a star like they're going to throw it to you a lot or you just can't get the usage that high because you just don't have the ability to do that and yeah i mean if you look at that list of names that you had so Steph, trey Kyrie, kitty DeRozan, levine pool those are all guys that you think of much more as on ball type of guys you know there are a, a few guys maybe like clay thompson used maybe would have qualified in some years previously that's the guy to me who bane compares to a fair amount but i think actually you know, bane is better on the ball or at least is asked to do more on the ball than Clay, even at his height. And, you know, Clay obviously has just a quicker release, more height, can get his shot off at crazier angles than Bane. But, I mean, if you just look at the amount of volume here, it's really, really impressive stuff. And Bane is certainly to be in the most improved conversation, certainly to be in the all-star conversation. He, he defends at a reasonable rate as well for a two-guard. I mean, he's not, you know, a buddy heel type. Like, he's better than someone like that. I think he's a, he's a plus defensively even if he doesn't quite make up for Morant um I want to say throw out one other thing here too Danny and I sure this came to mind watching the Hawks but it applies to the Grizz as well and, and I think McMahon said the same thing as you I'm not sure who came up with it first the idea of does Ja have the best highlight reel of any bad defender ever I think you actually said it on the on the strategy stream right I did yeah but Watching the Hawks, I think we may be reaching a little bit of an inflection point where attacking really bad guard defenders has become so in vogue. And not even just, oh, let's set a screen with your man and go at you, but you know, just even like you know, a Marcus Smart type of guy just 
you know, any anybody with a pulse offensively, just be like, hey, we'll just let you, if you have like a semi-transition situation, just go right at John Morant, you know, like Patrick Beverly did in last year's playoffs to reasonable effect, for example. And I think there's enough behind John. Also, he's nowhere near as bad as Trey Young is. But we might be reaching the point now where, because a lot of times you'll see stuff that happens in the playoffs. Everyone watches the playoffs. And what, things that may be stuff that's specifically brought in for the playoffs can trickle down, whether it's with respect to an individual player's weaknesses, just getting out there because everyone's watching the playoffs and watching Patrick Beverly hurt jaw, or because it's just like, hey, this is generally a tactic that we can try. Let's do it against whatever team we're going against. And that can just trickle down into the idea of like, hey, when we're playing this random basketball that a lot of teams are playing now, this is something we can do. And so I think even in the regular season, we may be reaching a point now where like the really small guards, like we're not talking about like, a, you know, a Brad Beal or Devin Booker back when they weren't good, but like they were fine as individual defenders. We're talking more about the guys who are just like really going to struggle to defend. Like Mike Conley is kind of running into this too. He's another one. Uh, we may be reaching a point now at which that really matters more in regular season basketball. And sorry for the long tangent there, but it just Oh no, that's me, fine. So. And one other quick thing on Bain before we move on. He's, I believe, it's 19th he's top 20 for sure in epm right now on the season they, they got released pretty recently and so that's significant you know and i believe they're the only guard combination where both players are top 20 the other thing i want to talk about briefly especially with the hope that jaron jackson jr is going to return soon is well what just very quickly what's different about memphis's defense this year compared to last year and yeah yeah what's wrong with them I, i've been curious to know this so there, there are kind of two parts to this. So one, so it's like the what what will persist and what will not. So the part that the good news for the Grizzlies that probably won't is that they've been worse protecting the rim and like from floater range compared to this year. So opponents are shooting about 3% better at the rim compared to last year and about 2% better from floater range. You expect both in terms of the frequency and in terms of the success for that to improve when you add in another rim protector, especially if Jaron is functionally replacing Santi Aldama in the rotation. So like you expect that. And for example, the Grizzlies, uh, Grizzlies opponents are 24th in location effective field goal percentage and they were 18th last year. So taking, taking harder shots, make less of them. You expect that to do. But the thing that I hadn't fully pieced together until I was working on this is that the other element that the Memphis Grizzlies have struggled at compared to their standard last year is that last year's Memphis Grizzlies were fantastic at forcing turnovers. They were fourth in the league, though worth noting, they were at 15%. They're only slightly below that this year, but because the league is forcing more turnovers, they're 14th. So like they've fallen a lot in ranking without the percentage. And I was like, okay, is that anomalous? And what I realized when I was starting to go through stuff is a lot of their best ball hawks aren't either on the team or in the rotation, depending. So in terms of steal percentage, the top players on last year's Grizzlies team were Xavier Tillman, who has played fewer than 100 minutes this year. He's still on the team. DeAnthony Melton, who's gone. Kyle Anderson, who's gone. And Tyus Jones, who's their backup point guard. Like, they have other players who are good defenders, like Dylan Brooks. But Dylan Brooks, like, that's not really what he does. He's a good defender, but he's not really a ball hawk. So yeah. I think that is going to be weaker than last year. There is a difference between something being not a strength and being a weakness. And I think that's where it's going to end up for the Grizzlies. But that is something that I don't expect to get back to their prior level. And perhaps not coincidentally, the Grizzlies, the first three years of the John Morant era were third, third, and last year first in transition frequency per cleaning the glass. They're up at 19% transition frequency last year, which was awesome. And uh, this year they are 15th. 
in transition frequency in part because i think they're not forcing the same number of turnovers their other problem is they can't get a defensive rebound either this year so that's that's been another issue uh however half court offense because we're like hey they're still a top five offense how are they doing it well they are now 12th in half court offense as opposed to 22nd a year ago and they are continuing to absolutely destroy teams on the offensive glass 36 percent offensive rebounding in the half court and they have been fantastic off of putbacks and so that's really boosted that half court offense uh, in addition to being better on first plays so now they're just a, a better team in the half court and perhaps that's more sustainable overall but it would be nice if they still could force a few more turnovers and and just continue to be like they're not quite as hard to play this year as they were last year yeah i think that's totally fair we can go back towards the bottom of the alphabet to the portland trailblazers the blazers are another success story in the league nine and four four and three since the last 15 and 60 they are positive in net rating, plus 0.9, which is 15th in the league, 19th in offense, and a strong 12th in defense. Remember, we talked about that at length in the last 15 and 60. And Raptor, more optimistic on the Blazers than ELO, 42 wins versus 37 wins, and thus Raptor gives them a 54% chance of making the playoffs. ELO, 33. A quick injury note on, on them. Shane Sharp sustained a volar avulsion fracture to his to his right pinky finger. And Jeff Stotts only had two of those in his of a pinky specifically in his database. Kobe Bryant and Marc Gasol. Neither player missed time. And Shane Sharp did play against the Dallas Mavericks, a game that you want to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. This one was a lot of fun. Mavs ended up taking it in the end behind another preposterous Doncic performance, but I came away relatively impressed by what the Blazers did. Now, they did go deep into the well in terms of minutes. Uh, No bench player played more than Sharps 19, and even Drew Eubanks, their starting center, played 33 minutes. Everyone else played 36 or more. Uh, including high 30s for Grant, Lillard, and Simons, their three best guys. Grant was ridiculous, 37 points, 5 of 9 for 3, got a lot of corner threes, uh, and 13 to 22 overall from the field. And he's just better than anyone that they've had at that spot by a country mile in the Lillard, Lillard era, and he's able to attack in isolation, had some plays where he even was scoring in isolation against Dorian Finney-Smith, who's a pretty good isolation defender. He was another option to attack Luka off the dribble when they wanted to. He could go after some of their smaller guards, like Tim Hardaway was not able to stop him, Dinwiddie, and he also gets out in transition. He'll get some offensive rebounds, block a few shots as well. And I, I he just really was uh, outstanding. I think he's been, he's having, to me, the best season of his career so far and doing it in a winning environment for this nine and four blazers team who is something, something two on the road yeah go ahead yeah something else i wanted to shout out for the blazers is we were overtly extremely concerned about the blazers center depth and you know that basically it was drew eubanks and then they've gotten more yeah. from well, Justice well their center depth uh, was terrible in this game i'll get to that but yeah but i mean to be able to survive against you know, like, I mean, that wasn't, they, they ended up losing the game, but like they, you know, Nurkic didn't play. So Drew Eubanks played 33 minutes and then they didn't even have Winslow who has been so important for them at, when he's been available this season. Yeah. So that was a, a big problem for them. And it was compounded by the fact that 
I thought that Lillard and Simons had pretty poor defensive games as well. Particularly Dame just was unable to be a factor on the weak side, which is really important because they're putting two on the ball on Luka fairly often when Eubanks would get involved in the pick and roll. And Luka, if he was on the wing, would try to gun that pass to the roll man, you know, particularly early on, Dwight Powell. JaVale McGee actually played zero minutes in this one, which is interesting with uh, Christian Wood back. I didn't hear anything about an injury from JaVale McGee. It was a smaller game overall, and in fact, the Mavs closed it with Finney Smith at center, which worked pretty well. That was a good adjustment from Kidd, because really none of the centers seemed to have it on the defensive end, and Wood had fouled out. But yeah, Lillard just wasn't getting enough size and to really just make that rotation quickly, get in the lane, force them to throw the skip pass over, and then you, know, you still have to use the time that that's in the air to actually close out when they throw that pass from one side to the other, which Luka can do, but you also can't give up a dunk right at the rim. They started off, the Blazers did, in that Miami Heat 1-2-2 zone with the two weaker defending guards, Simons and Lillard, on the baseline, and... They got out of that relatively quickly. They actually started 7-0, and then Luka started to find ways to attack that, and they eventually went away from that in the end. And then they were giving up just really soft switches, getting Simon. Like, Lillard's a little bit better in, in isolation than he is as a team defender, I think, but Simon's you know, obviously couldn't do anything with Luka, and they're just giving up the switch, and then they weren't even doubling afterwards. It was very odd, and you know, they ended up giving up uh, 42 points, 13 of 22 from the field, 15 of 18 free throws, and most importantly, and obviously uh, uh, 10 assists as well, yet another 40-point triple-double for Luka. But they only forced Luka to take five three-point attempts. So you consider the number of free throws and field goals. He was just getting into the lane. They didn't have good enough defense to even kind of back off of him and make him shoot the three. So I, I would have been nice if they could have just rolled with Josh Hart and him, told Josh Hart, you got to get over the screen. If he wants to throw it to the pop man, you know, Reggie Bullock or something, fine. Mavs were really hot early and then ended up finishing 14 of 43. And Dinwiddie on the ball was really the one who was doing most of the damage at 6 of 8 from 3. So I didn't think they had a great defensive plan against Luka and they didn't execute it pretty well. You know, Trendon Watford, who you know, a lot of Blazers fans seemed to like just because he was like you know scored some points last year like he's they're even switching him on to Luca at times that didn't go too well but then even off the ball he just doesn't have the athleticism or size to play center and so a lot of times the pass would go right over his head to the center and, and wasn't able to box out like it was it was that was a real struggle I actually thought the best of their bigs off the bench was uh, Jerry Walker, who is an awesome rebounder. Uh, he had four rebounds in eight minutes, but just like you could tell the way he goes after the ball and high points it, like he'd be a really good rebounder. And so I, I would have liked to have seen him a little bit more. Like he's got a little mobility. I'd like to see him in, in doing some switch stuff if that's what they're doing. Um, for can, yeah, can, so since you, I think you're transitioning a little bit. No, more I, I am not yet transitioning. Thank you. I, <laughs> I got, I got more. Um, Shin Sharp, a more quiet offensive game, really wasn't asked to do much. He had one actually really nice move off a closeout where he jab stepped right and then blew by his guy to the left. We haven't seen many blow bys from him. That was encouraging. It had a big finish there. Uh, but also, I just his defensive activity is good. Like he really tries in contrast to what you see from their starting guards. 
to just have a lot of activity defensively. Like, he actually really covers ground pretty well, uh, like crashing into the lane and then closing out. He doesn't always close out to the right guy necessarily. Like, his communication needs to get a little bit better, and he'll make some mistakes, but he's at least trying pretty hard out there. I just, I'd like to see a little more from him on the boards and as a health defender. And then Josh Hart, he's their starting three. I've always kind of been like... Ah, man, it, wouldn't it be so nice if Josh Hardy, 6'4", could play the two? He doesn't shoot well enough to play the two anymore. Like, he is really struggling with his shot. I know he had the, that game winner out of the corner when he didn't think about it, but, like, he's drifting sideways. He's not taking many threes. He only took two in this game. And, Nate, Nate, I'll, I have yeah. the number on that. Josh Hart is taking yeah. 1.8 threes per 36 minutes. Yeah, that's just like, that's just really weird. I mean, for a guy who was drafted as a 3D guy, I thought his jumper, like, I didn't see anything wrong with it mechanically, you know, back in his Lakers days. And, you know, he is a rugged defender. He'll push the ball. He was 0 for 7 from 2, which is a, a lot of misses around the rim. But, yeah, he played 36 minutes. He was guarding Luka. Maybe he's tired. But I just, I'm concerned about his shot. I think, like, now some of the, the Mavs are still closing out to him. Like, he could shoot it. I wonder how long it'll take before the scouting report gets out that, like, yeah, we can actually let this guy shoot it, particularly if he's above the break, where I think he looks totally uncomfortable right now. One other kind of strange note I wanted to, to talk about, I wanted to mention on the Blazers, is Nasir Little, right now, he's playing about 15 minutes a game, but... Again, I mean, we're so we're dealing with somebody who's only who on the season has played 200 minutes. But the positive for him, Nasir Little, pretty high three point attempt rate, making 46 percent of them so far. And so overall for Little, 65 percent true shooting on a low 16 percent usage. But that 16 percent is actually well above Josh Hart. Yeah, they actually ran out of bounds play for him to get a jumper. Like, he, it's kind of funny when you see a guy took three shots in 15 minutes, but he actually I thought he was aggressive with his shot on his rare touches. Let's get to the maps here. Yes, the Dallas Mavericks on the season, 7-5, and 4-2 since the last 1560. You can also note that they are 6-1 and one at home so far this year. Dallas is 7th in net rating, plus 3.4. ninth in offense, 11th in defense. Both Raptor and Elo project that they will finish with 49 wins, which is good enough for fourth in the Western Conference as their current projections go. 90% chance of making the playoffs for Raptor, 87% on Elo. And as you mentioned, Christian Wood came back. He played 25 minutes, 19 points on 7 of 11 from the field, plus 14. Yeah, he had an absolute field day as the role man late in the first quarter. That, that was when Watford was really struggling, had some big dunks early on, and was one of five from three, but he made every single one of his six two-point attempts. So he remains a really nice offensive option. He was plus 14, and so you just wonder, again, of what the thought process is for him to play more, but it's really, when he fouls out in 25 minutes, you can't play more. So that's that's the thought process there. Josh Green got more minutes off the Mavs bench. They're, they're pretty aggressive with the bench minutes. Bullock only played 17, and they're starting Powell now, and he's gonna not going to play more than 15 minutes probably, and they struggled with him out there to start both halves. And Josh Green, I think he is a good defensive player. Like, Jamie and Lillard trying to go at him. Simon's trying to go at him. Like, he was able to guard those guys pretty well when they tried him. And then the Mavs defense, their plan after Damian Lillard got off early, Lillard got to the foul line a ton. He had 29 points. It looked like, though, after the beginning of the game, when he was getting to the basket quite a bit and getting fouled, that he wasn't able to do that much. But he looked down, and he had the 29 and, and 12 assists. Only 6 to 16 from the field. Two of seven from three, but that's because they were either switching with matchups they were comfortable with, or they were switching and then doubling when they were uncomfortable 
with the matchup. And I thought the Blazers' attack on that was a little bit unimaginative. And most importantly, that they were just getting into things too late. Particularly when you know the other team is going to go to that switch double. you got to get into it fast and then get them with two on the ball as early as you can and then play out of that and have time to move it around and maybe you can even get it back to to Lillard later in the possession if that doesn't work out but they're definitely with Simons and Lillard like a little bit too slow setting things up um but that's this relatively effective defense I thought from Jason Kidd after the Blazers won an early flurry and Grant was going crazy from three they made 13 at 31 but they didn't give up that many three-point attempts for a team that really gets them up from the outside Spencer Dinwiddie, I mentioned he's just like continues to kill it on three pointers, six of eight from three. Like it seems like he hasn't missed one since he joined the Mavs. And then this closing lineup, like Moxie Kleba didn't really seem to have it, or at least Kid thought he didn't have it, and Wood had fouled out. So they said, hey, you know, we're not going to go to Dwight Powell. He's struggled. Kleba, they felt, I think, couldn't stay in front of the guards. So they just wanted to get another score on the floor with Tim Hardaway, who was plus 23 in 31 minutes. So they put him in for Dwight Powell, and that was their... And, oh, and they, they also had Josh Green in. So that was the, their closing group, Block and Powell. Block was in foul trouble. It didn't close it out, and that, that group went on a nice run. I think it was tied at 106, and then the Mavs ended up winning 117-112 as they made a bunch of threes in a row. Dinwiddie actually, I think, hit three three-pointers uh, in as many possessions, and that was really what uh, provided the separation. See if I got anything else on these guys. Uh, Tim Hardaway had put in a decent defensive effort. Like, he's never going to be good, but I, I thought he was really trying as, as best you could have hoped for him. Um, yeah, I thought just generally the difference in the game was the Mavs' ability to rotate defensively compared to the Blazers out of the gravity of each team's stars, where when you've got Lillard and Simons like trying to close out on guys on the backside or take away the roll man, like it just wasn't working well enough. Uh, and uh, that was the biggest difference I saw, and that, that's a big part of why they gave up all those threes at the end of Dinwiddie. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's go to Oklahoma City, Danny. They are 6-7. and seven. Quite an interesting performance against the Knicks, which we will discuss here. 3-4 and four since we last checked in on them in pretty extensive fashion. Josh Giddy had been out. He's been back now for a few games. But negative 0.4 net rating, 19th in the NBA, so they've earned that 6-7. and seven. 20th on offense? 20th on offense, the Thunder! Well, they're 20th oh. on offense after... What, what were they, 32nd coming into today? <laughs> I mean, it honestly feels that way. We'll, we'll talk about the complete insanity that was this glorious matinee basketball game. Yeah, so 16th on defense, and they project for... Sam Presti have uh, some heart palpitations at 30 and 52. 
which is 12th in the conference and 33 and 49 with Raptor and Elo respectively also would be 12th in the conference. They got Gulp, 5% chance of playoffs per Raptor and 17% per Elo. Again, Raptor looks at the is more player based. Elo is more team performance based. Yeah, this game against the Knicks was uh, pretty awesome. It was surreal when, I mean, so the New York Knicks scored 48 points in the first quarter, which is the most that they have scored in franchise history. And yet, they trailed at halftime. The Knicks did. It was 79. It was 79-73 in favor of the Oklahoma City Thunder, in part because over the course of the entire game, OKC, who after this bombardment is now all the way up to 26th in three-point shooting, they went 17 of 31 from three. Every single Thunder starter made at least two three-pointers, and all of them shot two of 40% or better. New Dora was two of five. Everyone else was over was 50% or higher. And it was, I mean, another phenomenal Shea Gilgis Alexander performance. 37 points, eight assists, three steals, two blocks, six turnovers, but taking 10 free throws, and he got his 37 points only making two threes out of three attempts. And he's just absolutely shredding this Knicks defense. They had no answers for it. I mean, and I think this is just a preview of how good he could be when they get a real team around him. Like, if they actually start making shots regularly, because they've been so awful these last two years and change, shooting the ball, and we've seen how many assists he's, or that they have left by the wayside with uh, missed shots. And the other thing I think was nice to see is, you know, he and Josh Giddy playing together. We'll talk a little bit more about the numbers on that. Uh, although they were compiled before the next game. Yeah, Shea is just like, he's playing like a top 10 player in the NBA so far. I mean, he's just the biggest thing they have going for them. What else stood out uh, from this ridiculous 145 to 135 win with that featured back-to-back 43-point quarters from the Thunder? I and mean, that was the crazy thing is the Thunder, they had a buck 22 through three quarters. Right. Like it, it took them having a bad fourth quarter to not get over well, 150. J- John Schumann had it that last year, the Knicks and Thunder played a game that finished at a, I think the total score of that game, they this game crossed at the eight minute mark of the third quarter. Like that's just <laughs> it was just how ridiculous it was. The Knicks, it was actually really fun. One of my favorite stretches of the game was they had Obi Toppin and Jericho Sims playing together. So that's the way that they've been handling or they handled the absence of Mitchell Robinson. This one was Hartenstein. When Hartenstein came out, typically Jericho Sims came in. I thought Jericho Sims actually played with really good energy. And the combined catch radius of Obi Toppin and Jericho Sims was an absolute delight because whether it was quickly or Rose, those were the most common combinations because of how Tibbs usually does it. They're doing that. But then another weird thread of this game was that the Knicks starters, you know, they they went on this, which was a mix of starters and bench, the historic first quarter. Basically, once the starters came out at the beginning of the third, they never came back in. RJ Barrett, I think he played like the first three or so minutes. And so, and, and I think some of that was, you know, trying to get a pulse and everything else like that. But I mean, it's not like the bench guys were defending well. And like they brought in Evan Fournier and I didn't think he was really doing a whole heck of a lot there quickly had an, had an effective game overall, but it was, it was very surreal and the thunder really got it from they got it from everywhere and i mean i I talked about the ridiculous shooting overall and worth noting that was almost all on above the break threes they only took seven corner threes in total the the knicks took nine um 
And then another thing that was weird about this game was Josh Giddy. Like, he actually had a very efficient game, but he did it mostly from floaters. Like, he has pretty good touch on the floater, but he was 6-7 from floater range. And this was not the chase center logging it, like, oh, there's shots around the rim. No, these were, like, free-throw line floaters that, that Giddy made. It was a stretch during the second yeah. quarter that really but, stuck out. But, like, if he – I mean, that's probably the – shot that I think has looked the best for him other than just like transition layups and so like that's that's a really important shot like he needs to be able to make that to be effective out of pick and roll he's we'll see how he does against switches but the Knicks are a conventional pick and roll defense team and so he was particularly with the shooters making shots he had the 12 assists and 17 of 31 from three really helps with that and so it doesn't surprise me that Giddy had his best game of the season against New York given the way that they kind of lack defensive versatility and, and he was able to pick things apart. And then that led to a great meme from Wally Serbiak, who for some reason is an analyst on MSG. Uh, and he was just like, went crazy about how Josh Giddy was just like sailing through the lane and just like moving. He's like, just rose through the lane. It was, it was really funny. Uh, but also shout out to Wally Serbiak for a game that I remembered because Rich Hoffman tweeted about him. Be like, this is the biggest example of one guy carrying a team I can remember. And I recalled a game that I was at in the NCAA tournament where Wally Serbiak scored 43 of his team's 59 points at first round NCAA tournament game in New Orleans in 1999. So that Wally can uh, go into, that could be our last memory of Wally rather than his uh, absurd rendition of Josh Giddy going down the lane. Speaking of Josh Giddy, unless you have anything else on this game in particular. No, it's fine. The numbers on Shea and Giddy together, like that's something to monitor. How well does that work? Like John and I talked a little bit about that of like, you know, is he, Josh Giddy making life more difficult on Shea? Is Shea really like, he should be the point guard, getting all you can eat heliocentrism and Giddy doesn't shoot that much or that well, at least in his career. And so is that messing thing up? What, what do the numbers say in terms of the team performance at this early juncture with those two on the floor together? Noting again, this is more what happens so far, not what will happen given that Giddy hasn't played that much so far. Right. And, and, but that actually makes the sample more compelling because since Giddy has missed three games, all of which Shea Gilders Alexander played in, that means that the Shea on Giddy off numbers are not just bench lineups with your bench versus the other team's bench. It's more of a mix of starting lineups and, and, and non-starting lineups. So I I mourn the loss of the NBA on-off tool. This was harder to do, though. You could do it with, uh, I can't remember the new name for NBA Wowie, but, you know, still NBA Wowie. And, and of course, some of the basics you could do with clean the glass as well. So when Gildas Alexander and Giddy are on the floor together, the Thunder have, before the Knicks game, a 103 offensive rating. That is distinctly not great. Also a negative 13 net rating, but that's not as much of the focus here. And here's the big comparison for me. Shea Gildas Alexander, when he plays with Giddy, 59% true shooting on 30 usage. When Shea plays and Josh Giddy does not, admitting that these are small sample sizes, 65.5% true shooting on 35.5 usage. And the team offensive rating goes from a 103.1 to a 122.1. Yeah, now, again, that's partly due to just three-point shooting luck, but Josh Giddy does probably contribute to lower three-point percentage with the 
What is he? What is he actually shooting on threes? Am I going to embarrass myself because he's like you know eight out of fourteen on the season coming in today or something? Let's see. On the season, Josh Giddy is nine out of twenty nine, so that's thirty one percent, and he's taken twenty nine threes in two hundred and sixty three minutes. Yeah, again, that was coming into today, but yeah, so TBD on this one. I mean, to me, it really it's all about. Obviously, they drafted Josh Giddy number six. I'm not saying they should bench Josh Giddy. That would be absurd. We're more just thinking about with Shea looking like he could be emerging into a legitimate all-NBA player, if not maybe even more than that, the way he's played so far this year, that Josh Giddey just needs to develop more and to where he's not negatively impacting Shea. Because he's not, Shea doesn't really have the type of game that's going to benefit from playing off of Giddy very much. Like, Shea's not really a spot-up shooter. Uh, like, he, Shea needs to have the ball. Like, Josh Giddy is not going to help that. And so, Josh Giddy can help everyone else on the team for sure and you need more passing but well and, and we've also we've also off. seen how playing more consistently with spacing at the five has opened things up for Shea Gildas Alexander and you could think that if you have if the other team especially if we get into a playoff situation and teams can go more into the scouting report or helping more off of Giddy then that will make life harder on Shea and also, again, small sample sizes, Giddy's efficiency drops precipitously, goes from 52% true shooting with Shea to 44% when he's solo. And that's another kind that can at times be assigned to be of a more kind of like not necessarily a dependent talent. I think that's too negative on Giddy. But the idea being that Shea probably does more to help Giddy than Giddy does to help Shea. And that's just a, a little thing I wanted to note and, and more monitor for the rest of the year. Like I will admit that I am lower on Josh Giddy than most people, even though I absolutely love him as a passer. And he did he did have a good game with the 24, 10, and 12 against the Knicks, and also obviously was efficient for the field. I don't want to be I don't want I don't want to diminish the very good game that he had. So but it's that it's that really interesting question with the Thunder about like once you have a focal point, how aggressively do you want to build around that focal point? And that doesn't even necessarily have to be trading Josh Giddy. I wouldn't support that at all unless you got a really ridiculous offer. It's do you de-emphasize him? Do you prioritize other things? Because you're you have you could potentially have something special and Gildas Alexander and now you know sort of like I've talked about with the Pelicans with Zion you might want to think about the rest of it a little differently let's talk about another game from Saturday that I really enjoyed actually the Pels and the Rockets Southwest Division showdown and looked like the Pels were going to absolutely run these guys out of the gym I'll get to their their stats in a second they're up 18 about midway through the third and then Jalen Green brought the Rockets back it was also not only Jalen Green but bringing in this very interesting Rockets bench that I think they might actually like defend okay I'll be interested to look at the numbers when we have a little bit more time but Usman Garupa, Tari Eason and Kenyon Martin Jr. all coming in together playing with Jalen Green and Dyson Nix that was the group that got them back into it Garupa did a really nice job of guarding Zion who overall was really good and he Jabari Smith having to defend Zion and Giannis in his first month of action that's really more than he can do and I think there's there's an understanding now that they can't against any any team who can do anything in the interior like they can't go Jabari Smith at center and obviously the Pelicans have a lot of guys who can do something on the interior uh Pels are seven and six but a, a disappointing three and four since we last checked in, they are a 3.6 net rating. However, that is fifth in the NBA, eighth on offense, 10th on defense, interestingly enough. 
see how sustainable that is. They project for 45 and 37 per Raptor, 46 and 36 per ELO, 72% chance to play as Raptor, 78% ELO. Oh, and, and Nate, on one other three. note on that as we go through it. So um, SRS, which is the, it's the simple rating system. It's something that Basketball Reference has, which basically it incorporates opponent quality. And you can get into some weird stuff here in terms of the sample, like when team, you know, I happen to have a bunch of guys out. But the Pelicans, despite being seven and six, they're third in the West in SRS. And the reason behind that, in part, is because they have they have some nice wins. And something that SRS really likes is when a team, when they lose, they lose close. And no team has, I believe no team has lost closer than the, than the Pelicans, who three of their six defeats came in overtime all by a single possession. And I think they only have two other, two losses that are double digits at all. Yeah, and they've had some pretty impressive wins, to be sure. Let's talk some uh, more about this game. Oh, for sure. I mentioned the comeback by Houston, and I'm just going to kind of go willy-nilly. We'll get to Houston stats I'm sure at some point much of the chagrin of Rockets fans but this game was very close and then New Orleans closed it on a huge run at the end to win by 13 Jose Alvarado caused a kerfuffle by doing his little sneak along the baseline steal thing with 18 seconds left when the game was completely decided it was a weird game for Alperin Shangun who got six fouls in 19 minutes Kevin Porter Jr., 23 points, 9 of 16 from the field, 3 assists, 7 turnovers, negative 28. Honestly, I would not have closed the game with him. I thought that he's one of the bigger problems with them defensively, and just the difference between their starting and backup units, where they really only have one decent defender, and that's Eric Gordon in their starting unit. Like, Kevin Porter Jr., he's... Kind of a coach's nightmare because he's technically kind of doing what he's supposed to when he helps at the nail, but he kind of just like standing there like so he could say on film, yeah, I was there, coach, but he's not really in a stance. The ball then gets thrown to his guy. He doesn't close out with anywhere near the amount of athleticism that he possesses, and he'll either get blown by or give up a three without really much of a contest. They got beat a number of times off of that, particularly with him guarding C.J. McCollum for a lot of the game. That was a problem. So, yeah, this starting group, I mean, Shingun, I think, when you see him out there, like, he'll get some verticality, plays, he rebound okay. Like, he's he's not, like, awful. But within this team defense, he's going to be awful. And so Porter, Green, Eric Gordon, who, you know, he's also playing the three. Like, I thought Gordon actually had a nice defensive night on Brandon Ingram. But, and then Jabari Smith, who was advertised to be this defensive anchor and just is not ready from that perspective at all. Uh, he doesn't do much as a rim protector as a four. I, we haven't really seen him be effective as a switch guy they're also like they're playing Shingun too so they're not going to be doing that much switching they're they're always going to start Jabari they're going to close with him just because of where he was drafted but they probably would frankly be better with some of these bench guys you know like Kenyon Martin Jr. out there like he'll at least push the pace or something like there might be times when Jabari is going to look better and they're going to continue to develop him he'll hit more shots and maybe he'll look better by the end of the year but you know, he continues to be I would say Danny disappointing even based on me my expectations for him I was lower on him than just about anyone like I thought he could at least be you know like a solid like really good three really good d type of guy at the four and that <laughs> that hasn't happened yet and he he has zero strength like he's just a, a 
a complete loss. He doesn't have that much explosion either. Oh, like he, yeah, go ahead. Well, and you brought up the explosion. Jabari Smith is converting 35% of his twos, and ah! he's not getting to the line. So it's like that combination. So yeah, I expect the three-point shot to be better, and I expect the twos to be better too, but it's... Yeah, there there are plenty of concerns here. I was more of a Jabari Smith optimist than you. Most most of us were, but that's been a concern. And then another part of that, and again, we will spend more we will spend more time on this in the future. Less than ten percent of Jabari Smith's shot attempts so far this season have been in the restricted area. Nine point two percent. He and has one dunk on the season. Yes. How is that possible? Like, if this team like likes to run, like you know, uh, here here's a, here's a comparison, Danny. Kenyon Martin Jr. Is, is basically his backup. Kenyon Martin Jr. has 24 dunks on the season, and Jabari Smith Jr. has one. And Kenyon Martin missed time. Uh, no, I don't think so. Didn't he? I thought he missed a couple games. No, in the no game he's, he's uh, he's maybe that was preseason. Games. Yeah, but uh, you know, Tari Eason has nine. It, so now, granted, those guys are like you know they're asking Jabari Smith to space out. Like that's that's part of what he does, but. To just not be able to just get a few dunks in transition, I mean, that's like, yeah. So it, it's disappointing, to be sure. Uh, but back to this game, Garuba, I thought, was really solid defensively. You know, he actually, he took a three, which uh, made you made you feel, like, a little better. He can't do anything on offense. It's weird. Like, he has really good timing around the rim defensively, but he just can't explode around the basket and... You know, I think if he's going to do anything, it's going to be make the occasional open three. But he can switch on to pretty much anyone. Like Zion was having trouble against him, whereas Zion was just, you know, he'd just go hard to his left hand against Jabari Smith and go right through him for a, a layup. Zion was 8 of 9. And also, the other exciting thing for Zion is he was 10 of 12 from the final. He's had some bad free throw games this season, but he's shooting it much differently. Like remember, he used to kind of shot put it off his left shoulder. Clearly, I don't know if it was... Fred Vinson, you would hope it was, but, but Zion kind of works with his own people. I'm guessing it was Vinson, who really, I think, has gotten his shooting form to, like, look normal. Like, he actually shoots it from, like, the center of his body, like, in front of his face now, like a normal person. And, yeah, so that, that was good to see that he made those. I mean, it's just a ridiculously efficient game for Zion with 26 points on 15 shooting possessions. Also had six assists, only three turnovers. Let's get to the Rockets fundamentals. We're going to shift to the Pels here in a second. Well, actually, I'll mention, uh, yeah. I'll mention briefly with... Zion, that he is shooting the best free throw percentage of his career so far. I think he's at like oh, 72, 73%, which isn't a whole lot better than he's done in prior years, but still still positive. Less positive um, are the stats for the Houston Rockets. Well, here, actually, let me say a couple more things about this game for the, the Rockets. Because sure. Jalen Green had 33 points, uh, 11 and 20 from the field. Green's overall numbers on the season... After this game, he's up to 55% true shooting now on 27 usage. He had some absolute clunkers early on, but he was 5 of 10 from 3. That That's going to be the number one harbinger of his efficiency is that three-point shooting. But he was able to shoot some on the move and then was actually blowing by some guys defensively. It would annoy me that the Rockets late in the game when they couldn't score, like kept bringing Larry Nance into the action and trying to ISO against him instead of doing it against Zion. I didn't really understand that. And like, you know, they're having like Garuba set the screen and the Pels like, okay, yeah, we'll switch Larry Nance onto Kevin Porter Jr. Like he's not going to do anything against him. And uh, Larry Nance is, is looking really good for the Pels. Talk more about that in a second. So that was a little bit disappointing, but Jalen Green, 
you know, transition, he was good. And I thought just that blow by speed was in evidence. Again, I continue to think he's going to be okay. I think he's going to be, I think he could be an all-star, maybe not like an all NBA guy necessarily, but it's hard to project that for just about anyone. But I, I still, he had a few bad games early on. I think he's finding his footing. I think he's going to be good still. He's still only his age 20 season. Something, now let's get to their stats. Something that might not be good else. this season is the Rockets' overall performance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, way to stick with the transition even after I interrupted you the first That's time. all right. I appreciate that. The Houston Rockets are 2-11 and on the season, 1-5 and since the last 15-60. and 60. They are 29th in net rating at a ghastly negative 8.7 points per 100 possessions, 26th on offense, 29th on defense. And this is significant for me. The Raptor model, which has been low in the Rockets the whole time, has them projected to go 18-6. and 64 if their projection held they would be four games clear in terms of worst record of everybody in the league the pistons are at 22 but here's the crazy thing pistons are at 22 the next lowest record is 27 and 55 the orlando magic so that would be very very clear if you want to shift to the elo model then the rockets are at 23 the pistons at 25 the magic at 28 so it's more condensed there but the rockets are putting themselves in either pole position or getting pretty close to it and since we're kind of on well, the- well that that could actually lead to them winning more games down the end if it they could. really are that part clear but they're uh yeah, that 22 and a half over looks like it could be in jeopardy, Danny. Uh, although it is worth noting the Rockets have had a murderous schedule. Yeah. Lots of, I think they had 10 of their first 13 on the road. Eco and I talked about this when he came on that it was just, it was always going to be a really rough start for them. And they've looked more competitive lately. Like they were getting completely destroyed in some of these games early on. Yeah, that that is 100% correct. And so did we already do the Pelican stats? No, no, let's get to those two. Uh, Pels, seven and six. Three and four. Oh no, we did do them because I. Oh, no, we did. The oh, that was right at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I, I started talking about them and then I shifted to Houston. Yeah. So, okay. and any other any other stuff you want to talk about with these two teams, or do we want to move on? Yeah. Well, yeah, we didn't do anything on the on the Pels really. Oh, that's so, true. We talked about uh, that. this is a, another interesting rotational game for Willie Green. Jonas Valanciunas again about twenty minutes. That's where he's been most of this season, and I think it's pretty clear that the fit with Zion is not great. And actually, let's take a look at that while we're at it. See what the numbers are with he and Zion on the floor. Actually, maybe you can look that up while I'm talking. Certainly, the eye test has not been good with that. And part of that, too, is that Larry Nance has just been awesome. He looks really bouncy. He killed the Rockets on the offensive glass. Five offensive rebounds. 22 points, 8 to 10. Also hit a couple of threes. And he provides just enough of that spacing element. And he's just not trying, like, even just simply from where he's standing on the floor compared to Valanciunas. He also can operate a little bit more at the elbows. One of the plays they're running is getting the ball to Nance at the left elbow and then having Zion just duck in on whoever was guarding him. Uh, oftentimes that was Javari Smith, so it worked very well. He would just start in the corner and it's like a flex action, except there's no one setting the back screen. Zion would just duck in on the guy from the, the right corner. And he's just so big that it's really tough to deal with because if you try to front him, there's no real help on the backside because of where they're standing. So then you can just throw the oop to Zion. I mean, it's kind of similar to like the same thing they would do with Shaq and Brian Shaw back in the day. And so you almost like have to let him get deep post position. And I think teams, teams will have to figure out a counter to that. It'll probably involve just bringing more help from the strong side and recognizing that that's what they're going to do. But just under the normal, that play is difficult under the normal principles of NBA health defense when there isn't really going to be anyone there to help. 
So Herb Jones, interestingly, only played 19 minutes, was still plus 15. Jalen Green is going crazy at the end of the third, early fourth. Herb Jones never makes it back in the game. And part of that was that they started the fourth quarter with Alvarado, who another just fantastic game for him. He did have five fouls, but he was 12 points, five of six from the field, plus 15 in 20 minutes. Of course, now he couldn't play at all until the fourth quarter and then plays the entire fourth quarter. Maybe Willie Green realized like, well, because I just stick with whatever is working, I don't want Devontae Graham to be working. And so like, let's just have Jose Alvarado playing in the fourth instead. Like they had been playing Alvarado in the third and then going to Graham uh, in the fourth or first and second because they six with the same rotation in both halves. And, you know, who knows? Maybe Willie Green has said to his team, like, hey, if you're playing well, your unit's playing well, like, I'm going to ride you. This is a deep team. And so he feels like he has to stick with those guys. So, hey, better to stick with Jose Alvarado if you have to than Devontae Graham, if that's what you said to your team. CJ McCollum had a struggle. Nine points, three of 14. And it seems like every time I, I watch a Pels game, he struggles. And he has 46% true shooting on the season, Danny, on 25 usage. He's shooting 28% from downtown. So that's going to get better for sure. But, you know, he's they brought him in to be a 40% three-point shooter, not a low 30s three-point shooter. So that's if he can kind of get back to where he's been, that'll really help these guys a lot. Um, oh, couple couple of stats for you. Um, yes, you asked about yes. the you asked about the Zion Valanciunas minutes together. A uh, plus four point four net rating in three hundred thirty six possessions per cleaning the glass. Sixty um, ninth percentile on offense, sixty second percentile on defense. So they've been positive relative to league average on. Clearly, there have to be some sh- fluky shooting numbers there. My eye test can't be wrong, although. Sadly, the eyes can't watch every game and the stats do. So uh, for now, we'll, and, sorry. I, I'll have to abandon that line of thinking. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, well, catch well back here's, here's, here are another couple stats for you. So Zion plus Larry Nance plus 14.7 net rating. Um, and part of that is they've been crazy good on defense, 102.2. And that includes opponents not making any threes to save their lives. Um, so that that's there. And then the other stat that I wanted to throw out there is that Trey Murphy's cooled off a little bit. He had the 0 for 5 from 3 in the game against the Rockets. He's all He is still at 39% three-point shooting. There is a member of the Pelicans who is taking more threes per 36 minutes or and making more of them, and that's Devontae Graham. Devontae Graham's at 7.1 per 36, which is slightly higher, and he's making 41%. That's wild. Yeah, this team just doesn't take a ton of threes, you know, even against the Rockets. They're 8 out of 29. That's part of why it was so close, uh, but they still put up a buck 19 on these guys. So it does seem like there's a little, like Zion is playing a lot better. I mean, that's the number one thing to me these last few games, even though he still is going left 95% of the time. He's at least going right 5% of the time. He comes back to finish with his left hand, but he's keeping the defense honest and he's looking more explosive, more comfortable, more of the offense seems to be running through him. He's doing more off the drill at the six assists in this game against teams that don't have a guy for him. He's really starting to kill it. But now the questions of how they work the offense around him with him being such a unique piece. Herb Jones missed all three of his threes. In this one, He's he can make an open one, but he's not a high-volume guy there. I mean, they have this huge starting lineup that would work a lot better, frankly, if they just had the versatility of Larry Nance rather than Valanciunas out there. And that may end up still being their closing group. Um, you know, CJ has been struggling a little bit. Brandon Ingram missed time. He's back. 
and was fine in this one, but not uh, amazing. I, I actually thought he had a very nice defensive game in the fourth quarter, like uh, as a an active help defender, ended up with three steals and a block. It just made some plays, crashing in the lane, closing out well on shooters. That's always good to see. That's going to be a really important role for him, particularly in this game where Alvarado was playing instead of Jones. So they needed more of that wing defensive work from him. He'd get it. But yeah, this team, like they clearly have a lot of talent. And Zion looks healthy. He hasn't had really any injury scares. He had one little ankle sprain. He made it back from that. They can absorb some injuries. But, you know, the Valanchunas thing is a little bit worrisome. Overall, he was 2 of 7 in this game in his 20 minutes. And 59% true shooting, 23 usage. So you'd hope he is a little more efficient than that. I, I don't know. Maybe he's just played better in the games that I haven't seen. But it seems like, you know, he's only playing 20 minutes, right? So that's that's at least somewhat of an indication that it's not working that well. But maybe it's also just an indication that Larry Nance has been really good. And he's probably, he might actually be their most indispensable player right now. He's the only one in this roster. I think they don't really have a replacement for his skill set. So yeah, I want to see what Willie Green could do and whether they can make all of these parts add up to their sum. Well, and and, and uh, of course whether they can defend the, at the highest levels. Well, but and, this is this is a good team. Unless they get hurt like they're going to be a playoff team. Well, and Nate, we're going to get a really good set of tests for the Pelicans between now and the next 15 and 60 because they play six games, five of them against teams that made the playoffs last year, including two against the Memphis Grizzlies. So lots of different types of teams. For The first four of those are in New Orleans, Memphis, Chicago, Boston, and the Warriors. So I think that could be some, some good fodder for us to talk about next time. Yeah, we made it through 10 teams, but this is almost two hours of recording time here. So we will call it quits and get back to you all tomorrow afternoon. Also a reminder, Danny, NBA strategy stream. Who are we doing for tomorrow's game? We are doing Atlanta Hawks at Milwaukee Bucks. That is an 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific start. Big revenge game for Milwaukee. They lost, uh, had their first loss this season and, against And Atlanta. Nate, importantly, Giannis is probable. <sighs> yeah, we've had pretty good luck so far this year Knock on wood. with the strategy stream I, I hope that will hold yeah so it, please join us there and if you're on the free pod of course please join up here you can give a listen to john hollinger on wednesdays the dunked on prime is the only place to get all of those episodes and of course all of our episodes as well five days a week talk soon at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.